Good evening here and good morning to those joining from Singapore and there may be others joining from other places. If so, my best wishes and good greetings wherever you are in whatever time zone you may be. So here we are yet again. Or another session of S and B N. <laughs> it's a big news network. <laughs> Dharma News Network. Uh, hopefully it goes to other planets also. So welcome and uh, we'll spend the first few minutes in the quiet meditation. where we try to settle our mind and body. And that, that we do so by trying to keep the mind focused on something in the body. Be that sensations, bodily sensations, breath, whatever it may be, whatever you happen to choose. <clears throat> Try to bring the mind home, here and now, <clears throat> and let it settle on whatever chosen object you have decided on. Once you have decided on it, try to stay with the object alertly, attentively, delightfully. In maintaining this, awareness with these qualities, try to maintain the balance between pushing too hard and being completely careless. And whenever mind falters or goes off track, just merely acknowledge that, gently bring it to the object, and then start over again. Shortly, we'll be reciting the homage to Shakyamuni Buddha. In preparation for that, uh, try to come up with a visualized merit field, whatever works with you, a simple one or a complex one. If you go for a simple one, you could just imagine the presence of Shakyamuni Buddha in his full radiance. with his infinite love, compassion, bodhicitta, wisdom, and all other qualities, the positive qualities, having reached full culmination of perfection. Just imagine what such a state would be like with all the afflictions
completely eliminated to the subtle, subtlest potencies, latencies of them, while the qualities, good qualities, have all fully reached full culmination. And among these qualities, the most strong, guiding, directing quality is loving kindness, infinite loving kindness, compassion, bodhicitta, complemented by the unerring wisdom, and surrounding oneself, visualize all sentient beings. For the sake of convenience of visualization, think of them in human forms, joining us in this prayer recitation as well as in the reflections to follow, and also joining us in this sharing of Dharma. Though in human forms yet undergoing their own respective, unique sufferings and predicaments pertaining to their specific category of sentient being that they belong to or any of the four phases of existence including that of Bhartho. Connect with all of them at the very basic fundamental level of our shared aspiration for happiness, freedom from suffering, rightful, justified, fundamental, yet, yet at the same time not always met. Based on this recognition of our commonality, across the board without leaving anything out, anyone out. Think of how we also share other aspects of our existence in samsara, the confusion, the ignorance that rules over us, the confusion that follows from that, how this right meaning to bring happiness and reduce suffering we end up piling, bringing more sufferings and unable to recognize the causes, true causes of happiness. Almost seem like deliberately slamming them. Through these reflections, rooted from one's own experience, try to develop a felt sense of affinity, empathy, compassion, and bodhicitta as a way out for all of us. feel that the sentient beings, fellow sentient beings, are also feeling, sensing the warmth of this growth within you 
and thus it spreads all sentient beings at this moment all sending good thoughts to each other giving rise to bodhicitta by way of cultivating a proper motivation for this dharma session I want us all to reflect on this bodhicitta, the mind of awakening, the mind that directs itself to nothing short of full awakened state of being, so that one could be of utmost and full benefit to all sentient beings. At least on on one's part, there will be nothing lacking, nothing short in being of benefit to sentient beings in the true sense of the word. Take a moment in reflecting on this in terms of its object of achievement. It settles on nothing short of full awakening. In terms of the purpose for which one is aspiring, aiming at full awakening, is for the sake of all sentient beings without exception. Which means sentient beings, wherever they may be, irrespective, not just confined to this planet of ours, but extending far beyond. And then just thinking of our own planet also, doesn't leave out any sentient being, irrespective, whether they are humans or not whether they are from this country or that country, this religion, that religion, even without religion. And that too, when he thinks of for the sake of all sentient beings, it has the aim of being able to show the path, assist the sentient beings in arriving at their own state of full awakening, that by first attaining full liberation from the clutches of afflictions and the actions induced by them, and then eventually leading further into full awakening themselves, in placing them in the same state of being, same state of achievement that one is aspiring for them, how marvelous such a mind in terms of what actually takes to generate genuine bodhicitta. Think of the causes leading to it. Other we think of generating bodhicitta, genuine bodhicitta, through the method of certain point cause and effect instruction or that of exchanging, equalizing and exchanging self with others. Think of what 
steps are involved. What are the preceding mental attitudes that one has to establish strongly on the basis of which one then eventually generates full awakened state, the mind of full awakening. Such an attitude is difficult, even very difficult to imagine that animals can generate, can eat, even for the slightest, smallest amount of time. It looks far into the future. It is strengthened by very strong courage, far-sightedness, and to the extent possible, the wisdom by which one sees a way to fully realizing it. Such a mind that looks far into the future for the sake of all sentient beings as well as the space. And that too, settling for nothing short of awakened state of being for each and every sentient being. That's the goal behind one's pursuit of of full awakening, the body state. Just thinking of how difficult it is for other sentient beings to generate, to even form an idea of such aspiration. To that extent, it speaks of how precious this human rebirth is, equipped as it is with this marvelous brain. and the capacity of the mind, planning, thinking, what not. This is not something animals and so many of these different types of sentient beings spoken in this book, spoken of in the scriptures, can even imagine to generate, let alone actually make efforts. Some are very distracted, some are very overwhelmed by their suffering or by their confusion, suffering of this type or that type. Although humans have sufferings, but not as dramatic, with some exceptions, but generally, we are in the middle of the two extremes of being completely lost in the temporary pleasures of sense objects and that are completely overwhelmed by sufferings at each given moment, unceasing suffering. And then on top of that, we are equipped with this mental capacity of thinking along the lines of bodhicitta, penetrating into the actual deep fundamental nature of things like reflecting emptiness and then generating such 
wonderful attitude that's infinite love, compassion, founded on the cultivation of economy, etc. And then eventually cultivating, culminating in bodhicitta. Among the kind minds, there's nothing that excels bodhicitta. And we are able to, at the very least, generate, understand and generate, mold our mind, even if for a short period, into that of bodhicitta, and have some confidence that provided we persist in our efforts, we can rally our strength, capacity around it, be that from the wisdom side, from the method side, from the kind-hearted, warm side. It's so marvelous. There's real hope that yes, with this realization and seizing of this opportunity, gearing it into the direction of bodhicitta, whatnot, is great hope and possibility that yes, we could begin our journey in a safe, secure way from this time onward, followed by unceasing succession of as fortunate human rebirths, thus being able to continue from where we, we have left, being able to utilize it fully, it takes so many f factors, such as being in the presence of Dharma, in the presence of community, environment that is conducive to the Dharma practice, and yes, with the presence of masters, teachers, and then Though it may look like insignificant, but very crucial is one's own interest in the Dharma practice. And with efforts, making some progress on it, so that one's interest is ever increased. So all of this to come together is not that easy. Thus, we must realize this, remind ourselves of this again and again. Together with the fact that, yes, this life so fortunate and complete with wonderful opportunities is not going to last long. Let alone last forever. could be gone any time. So thinking along these lines, one must come up with a, a sense of there being no time to lose. 
yet at the same time being very hopeful and appreciative of the many conditions that have come together. So in terms of making the most of this life, what would that mean? Just merely using it in being in feeling well, feeling good for the temporary time. That would be a way of wasting it, kind of fooling oneself and thinking that one is making the most of it while what one has what one would achieve from this be very fleeting and would be gone with one's death, nothing left behind. One should look a little deeper in how to make more sense, more use of the time of this great opportunity in dealing with the afflictions, seeing them to be the very root of all the sufferings, not just the suffering of pain, but even more deeper, the suffering of change, as well as, more importantly, the pervasive conditioning which is called pervasive because it pervades the entirety of samsari realms, without exception. Whereas when it comes to the suffering of pain, suffering of change, there are certain sentient beings who may be temporarily freed from them. But with their conditions being underpinned by the pervasive suffering. One, it's just a matter of time when they would even lose that, come back, full circle, into once again deep, steeped, deeply steeped in even gross sufferings. So thinking along these lines, as well as thinking of the great aim, ambition that one has of achieving full awakening. At the very least, the afflictions should be the priority to address. And then going deeper, not just the afflictions, but even the subtle roots of these afflictions to render it completely irreversible would be the next. But then, even if one succeeds in rooting out the afflictions and thus be freed from the cycle of uncontrolled birth and death on oneself, but without the subtle 
latencies, imprints or instincts, traces of the afflictions been completely eradicated or eliminated, one would still be under the sway, under the control, under the influence of the cognitive obscurations and thus that will stand in one's way of becoming a full benefit to all sentient beings. Thus the utmost use we can put this opportune time into would be to attain, to aim at achieving full awakening so that one would be completely free, not just from the afflictive obscurations, but even the cognitive obscurations, thus be completely freed of any obscurations, obstacles whatsoever, and thus be able to bring one's positive potentials, all of them, to full culmination, so that one would be fully capable of being benefit, of being of benefit to all sentient beings without exception. The moment each and any every every any sentient being fulfills the criteria, fulfills the condition on their part, one will be already there in benefiting them even more. So let's settle on this more enhanced, more strengthened state of Buddhahood, state of bodhicitta, aspiring for Buddhahood, for the sake of all sentient beings. Towards that end, we assemble here to share the Dharma. So let this be the motivation behind our gathering tonight. So now, oh yes, last time we finished the previous section, long overdue section. Now we are going to study or look at this section called Equality of Samsara and Nirvana. Speaking of which, I'm reminded of a conference that was held a few years ago. Just a few years ago in Delhi, where a group of Theravada monks came from, I think mainly from Thailand, from other countries maybe. A big group of them, they came to Delhi and His Holiness the Dalai Lama together with especially invited monks and scholars and masters from different traditions, Tibetan Buddhists, came. They all gathered in Delhi and uh, there was a conference. That might have been the first major such conference of the nature that it took. They came up with questions. I. I tried, I couldn't get hold of entire questions that they came up with, but one was very recognizably 
This one. What is happening? You are saying samsara and nirvana are same, equal? That means we are already in nirvana or we will always be in samsara? We never get out of, there's nothing, no such thing as getting out of or into getting into. Since they're equal, we already have it or not have it. That was one of the questions. And I wish I was there or I got hold of the whole questions. Interestingly, among them, some of them I recognized, some of the Theravada ones I recognized, just from a, just from a conference that I was in in Malaysia, and we, we happened to meet there, together with uh, Venerable, is it Damananda? Damananda, right? Yeah, she, she's a Thai. Hmm? Together with both Bhikkhu, not Bodhi, someone called Anand. Okay. Uh, he originally is from Nepal, but he was brought up in, I think, Thailand from very young age and eventually served as. I think the secretary or I think secretary to the the what do they call it? Damaraj. Yeah. Damaraj Damasang. Yeah, Sangaraja. So that made me even more eager to know the question. <laughs> so this was one of the questions. And you can imagine how, without discussion, we were looking at each other and saying, oh, they're away of this, this is equal. Right? And, and then on top of that, uh, the Vajrayana and all of this, okay. <laughs> I mean, even from the time of Nagarjuna, there was this question, Mark, cast against, Vajrayana. Although Vajrayana is not Vajrayana as school by itself, when you speak of Vajrayana, then it has to be Mahayana, it has to have the, uh, the individual liberation on, as its foundation. It's still like the combination of all three of them. There's no such thing as Vajrayana, sense, Sutrayana, Sudhavayana, and uh, Pratimokshayana. But still, there was this uh, distance and deliberately maintained through reasonings, whatnot, acquisitions against each other. So this was one of the questions. And this is, uh, although this expression comes in many of the texts, in the many of the texts of the Indian masters, but uh, Tibetan Buddhists, Order-wise, uh, the Sakyapas are kind of uh, associated with a, with a statement to this effect. Konde, konde yerme. Konde yerme. Kor is korwa, samsara. De is nyangde, nirvana. 
element is no difference. In, in no difference like that. Or equality or one taste. But here it is called the element. No differentiation. No difference between samsara and nirvana. So, yeah, I'm, I think I read the news report uh, on this conference, and yeah, it was very clearly there in the news report itself. They came with questions, and the first, or well, one of them was this one. They wanted to know what in the world did that mean by samsara and nirvana being the same. <laughs> So yeah, this this caption is quite telling. It brings so, so many memories <laughs> to me. So from the perspective of the ultimate nature, Steve, we are starting from the right away with the answer. <laughs> all the afflicted phenomena of samsara and all the purified phenomena of nirvana are equally empty. Not just the phenomena of samsara and nirvana, but even samsara itself and nirvana itself are equally empty. Equally empty is very important to emphasize here. It may be empty in one way or not the other way, not in that. They are empty when it speaks of the emptiness. They are equally empty. It's not that there is a difference in the quota. This is the context. This is the context of the expression of the equality of samsara and nirvana unity of samsara and nirvana, or non-differentiation between samsara and, and, and nirvana. One taste of all phenomena, including samsara and nirvana. So both samsara and nirvana taste the same. <laughs> so we have already tasted nirvana, because we have not only tasted Digested, ingested samsara. <laughs> and similar phrases found in sutras and tantras. Yeah, so I, I, I came up with, I, I did some homework. So Nagarjuna mentioned this in treatise on the middle way. And Haribhadra who wrote the commentary on Abhisamaya Lankar, spoke of it in his commentary on Ornament of Clear Realization, and Tsongkhapa explained it in his elucidation of the five stages of Goya Samaja. So that's the Vajrayana text. So in, in, in Haribhadra's, in Haribhadra's uh, commentary on Ornament of Clear, Life, Clear Realization, Abhisamaya Lankar, he speaks of Tongba Nyi Tu Chikpa Nyi. Everything is equal in terms of emptiness, in the spirit of emptiness. Everything, everything, every phenomena, starting from form, you may have come across this expression, starting from form, Sogne Nam from form to omniscience. So that's referring, that, that's uh, referring to a 
that that's the range, right? Which includes every 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 phenomena. And uh, when we say it's from Sok, Sok Nenam Jepar, it's it comes up with so many lists, which starts, which happens to start with Sok form, and ends with omniscience. That's a way of speaking of all phenomena. From form to omniscience means equal to saying all phenomena. So it's it's referring to a what do you call a classification of phenomena into different categories, which have happened to start with one category of which the first representation is form. And the, and ends with the last category of which the last representation happens to be omniscience. So it says, It begins with form, form and form and etc. Or form and all all phenomena from form onwards. They all share in the same. They all have the same. They all have one nature. In terms of their ultimate basic nature, they are. I don't know if it. They are of one nature. They are merely of one nature. They are. Yeah, they are merely of one nature. Not just that. They are mere, they are merely of one nature in emptiness, not just that the emptiness of every 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 phenomena. They are not different, but of one taste. So one thing about emptiness, when we speak of one taste, the the emphasis about emptiness is because it is the ultimate, the most fundamental ultimate nature of things, in such that. All other natures of things that things that things may share relatively among themselves or may be very unique to individual phenomena, all of them are rooted in this in this fundamental nature of emptiness, of there being no intrinsic inherent existence. So it's 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 important to uh, appreciate that aspect. Nothing becomes more fundamental than this subtle nature of emptiness, of there being totally, completely lack of inherent existence. The fact that things are causally related is because they are related. They are related because they are, there is no stumbling block in that. Because if things were to have inherent existence, even the slightest iota of it, and it would be a stumbling block in things being dependent. Without that, there would be no dependent on causes and conditions, no dependent of any other sort, such as being with parts and etc. So, and then when we speak of functionality, the things that are capable of doing things and whatnot, by mere virtue of their being thoroughly through and through dependent. And that is by virtue of there being no inherent existence. So in that respect, uh, in that respect, highlighting emptiness is uh, very crucial and it is unique to emptiness.
But one thing is, not it's, it's not just that emptiness. By the way, I I I remember His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, commenting on why we use such a dramatic uh, term, almost shocking term as emptiness, to convey the subtle dependent nature of things. One is to strike home the message. Given our so conditioned habituation into thinking and accepting and believing in inherent existence, there needs to be a shocking moment to kind of rise, to rouse us out of it. So that's the reason why emptiness, which itself is, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, which itself, which itself keeps room for misinterpretation, misunderstanding, or whatnot. But nonetheless, still, the scriptures kind of insisting on that, beginning with the Buddha himself, is uh, is because there's that need, there's, there's this, this need of hitting us hard. I've come across people saying, why, why say emptiness? Why say emptiness? And I was always thinking, oh, yeah, you are right, we could change. But now I'm not going to go there. <laughs> no, 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 no. For this very reason why you are complaining, we need to keep emptiness. <laughs> Just the fact that it's making you uneasy, that's the point. That's the point. Right? So it's saying emptiness, no matter of anything, of any, any, any phenomena, is not different. There may be several phenomena there. Phenomena. There may be several phenomena there, and each one has its own emptiness. So, equivalent to the number of phenomena, there are number of emptinesses. But the emptinesses themselves. The, the number of phenomena that serve as the basis of their respective emptiness are different, so varied, and whatnot. But the emptiness is on them, no matter how uh, varied their base objects may be, they, they, they do not amount to multiplicity. They do not amount to manifold. They all boil down to the same not just boil down to, they all are of the same nature. So here, same nature, same, same, same taste. Here we speak of same taste in the sense of same measure, Isra. Same measure, same measure of emptiness. Whereas we, when, we, when we speak of qualities like impermanence like that, momentary changing, Although when when I when 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 we say momentary changing, usually we think of momentary as in very subtle moment. But in the scriptures, when we speak of things not staying for a moment and changing the next moment, and dependent on what object you are speaking of, dependent on what object uh, you are speaking of. Uh, the, that momentariness takes uh, different form. 
or takes. Yeah, it means it, it takes different form. It's not momentary, momentary equally for every everything. So we say that all con compounded phenomena share in the quality of not staying the next moment of their existence, the next moment of their generation. But how long does that? How how? How long is that next moment compared to one's present moment? It depends on what the object you're speaking of in terms of impermanence. Just to give you an idea, the year 2023, it's also momentary in that, in that, rang tu petule tu niwar it will not stay the second moment of its of its coming into being. Now the question is, when did it come into being? Is it still 2023? It definitely is. But when did it begin? Not today. When what when does it end? Okay, so that's its second moment. But at the same time, we can speak of it being it's changing momentarily in the way we understand it. Anyway, given that there is still the room to speak of momentarily changing equally on all the compounded phenomena, uh, the scriptures say that the measure of their impermanence is different. Whereas when it comes to the measure of emptiness, the measure of the lack of inherent existence, there's not the slightest difference at all. So that's why we can speak of it being one taste. So we could wonder, can we speak of things, compounded things sharing in one taste other than the uncompounded phenomena, in that they are all compounded impermanent? Well, in a way, we could speak of them as one taste uh, because they all share in compoundedness. But that, that oneness doesn't filter into filter down to real or actual one taste. Because there will still be a variation in the measurement of their being impermanent. So, but we could, we could still debate, like, oh, how could that be different or whatnot? But I'm just giving you a general. <laughs> so that's the reason why we speak uh, in terms of emptiness that once one once one understands the emptiness of one thing, then it's just a matter of applying it. That's wonderful. We just have to think of one thing, or ourselves, that we will be always with ourselves. Just think of ourselves, and then focus on its emptiness. Make sense of its emptiness. Once it is figured out. Boom, we could all be looking out and everyone would be emptiness. <laughs> but coming to terms with it and being able to really uh, kind of adopt it at the gut level and be able to really uh, really um, uphold the functionality 
there are challenges there. Because very often when we think of things being empty, it almost seems like there's nothing. Whereas that's not the case. If there were nothing, then there would be no function. So how would you fit functionality into the lack of inherent existence? Lack of inherent existence amounting to almost saying that there is nothing from their side. It is merely leveled. It always takes resort at the at the level of the subtlest dependent origination. It takes resort, or it takes it 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 brings up a designating mind, the design the basis of designation and the designating mind as as things that uh, as things to depend on when we speak of dependent origination in the subtlest sense. When we speak of dependent causation, the causes are the things to depend on and the results are those which depend on it. When we speak of meteorological dependence, then we speak of the whole being dependent on its parts, and the parts, of course, dependent on the whole. But when it comes to the subtlest dependent origination, namely dependent designation, the dependence, of course, they would still be dependent on the cause and whatnot, but what is being, what is being touched on is to to convey the subtlest uh, uh, level of dependency that or designation uh, the what do you call the the basis of dependence the 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 things that we are speaking of things being dependent they are different. We're no more speaking of dependent on cause in terms of results being dependent on it, nor are we speaking uh, of whole being dependent on the parts, parts on the whole, but rather we are bringing a subjective, subjective factor there, the designating mind, designating conceptual thought. At the very least, a designating subjective agent it could be a society, norm, decision, agreement, whatnot, but nonetheless, coming from a subjective point. And, and that, in conjunction with the basis of, basis of designation, which is not the thing itself, then we figure out the emptiness of the thing. So that's dependent, dependence more primarily on the, on the designating mind, independence on, uh, on the basis of resignation. And that's almost taking away things being, things being there. The cup is there, of course. We say, we, we do make the distinction between the cup being there. This, is, this dependence on the subjective agent is very different from what the Chitramatras, the mind only school speaks up. So one challenge is to teach, to tell them apart. One challenge is to tell the dependence on the mind, the Chitramatra system, to that of the 
prasangika padamekas. They're not saying that everything is in the nature of mind. In the in the in the Chitamatra system, it would almost seem like you're projecting and everything if you're projecting and 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 everything is in the nature in the nature in the nature of the mind itself with the with the latencies having ripened the latencies would have been left by mind so everything would be that's the reason why they go to the extent of saying there is no external thing external to mind everything is in the nature of mind itself not just meant designated so the one thing is that's the reason why the the differences in the positions of the uh, tenet systems can be very helpful in kind of telling one from uh, one from the other and kind of uh, refining the understanding of the of the higher uh, position so so when the dependency the factors on which the things are dependent shifts to that of a designating mind and that of the basis of designation, none of them the thing itself and 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 amounting to saying that thing that that very thing, say the cup, doesn't come from its own side, but yet at the same time it exists if it exists and doesn't exist from its own side, then the only option left is for it to exist from this side. That's one way of arriving at understanding, or rather a position, strong position, that yes, things are subjectively designated. But that doesn't solve the whole problem. <laughs> because what it seems to imply is that that, that the whole concreteness, the whole tangibility of the thing is lost. It's almost like all of a sudden the mug doesn't remain mug. The cup doesn't make, remain cup. Body doesn't remain body. It almost becomes, it, it almost gets lost into ethereal, ethereality, <laughs> ethereal. It almost becomes ethereal. This is uh, slightly easy, easier on when we when we uh, think of person, because person by its very nature is neither body nor mind, even in terms of the whole uh, schema of dividing compounded phenomena. We compound, we come up with three categories of mind or men mental. Consciousness, mental, physical, but matter, and then that which is neither. And the person is already there in the in the, in the neither, so it is already ethereal or some kind of a. There is a, some kind of a surreal as, uh, aspect to it. What about cup, book? We cannot say the book is. The book is a compounded phenomena, and it is not consciousness, but it is matter. So how do we retain its materiality when we speak of its being merely designated? 
Because when we speak of things being designated, at least the first impression that comes to us is that things are mere mental constructs, mental images. Already we reduce them to an ethereal kind of a state. That one thing, that is one thing. And then on the basis of that, how do we account for the functionality? Now in our contemplation, the house has almost become ethereal. Now how is it supposed to hold people, <laughs> stand the ground? So fitting functionality, that too, not just anything goes, but distinct functionality, distinct regular functionality, that things do not just kind of mix up. They retain their their conventional identity and functionality distinctly. Yet at the same time, they have to be not existing from their side, thus being merely designated. So, whereas, whereas what understanding of emptiness is supposed to, a correct understanding of understanding is supposed to lead us to is not only seeing things being thoroughly dependent uh, on their, on, on all other uh, ways of dependence, but fundamentally uh, on their basis of designation and the designating subjective agent. And at the same time be uh, fully functional and yeah, so <coughs> so yeah, whereas the understanding correct understanding is supposed to reinforce its 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 conventionality, reinforce its conventionality reaffirm its conventionality while at the same time uh, maintaining its, 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 its such a, its very thin uh, line of, thin line of conventionality uh, grounded in its lack of any intrinsic identity. So that's considered the most crucial point in understanding uh, in understanding emptiness. Put in another way, being able to being able to comfortably fit conventional functionality into into the nature of being inherent, lacking inherent existence. It almost would seem like, it almost like seem, it almost would seem like, what, do you, what is the expression putting a, a square in a, in a round hole? Uh, it would almost seem like that, but that's not, it would be, 
just the just the right fitting. I don't know why I took off that far. Went very far. I have to call myself back because we are just discussing this expression. Okay, chutamje eni rojam. And and along with this one tasteness, there's this expression of everything is of same taste in both the on both accounts of the two truths. On both accounts of the two truths, deni ronyam. One taste in terms of two truths. Every phenomena is one of one taste in terms of two truths. That means, in terms of their being, uh, a, their being, in terms of their being concealed phenomena, in terms of their being, a, in terms of their being, uh, this is difficult. Uh, one way of calling it as one taste in terms of two truths is also calling, or is also by saying that they are one taste in terms of their falsity in terms of their uh, reality. They are in terms of their falsity, in terms of their reality. So both of them are only so much real and also only so much false. And in that they share in the same test. And that that attune that 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 attunes with the two truths. That's why this expression, another expression called "chetamje deni ronyam," every phenomena, all phenomena are of one taste in terms of the two truths. I'm inserting in terms of what whereas in Tibetan it is all phenomena, two truths, one taste. <laughs> Among them, there is not the slightest difference in terms of being false, they are equally false. In terms of being real, they are equally real. Not one is more real than the other, not one is more false than the other. And that is all in relation to their nature of utterly, thoroughly lacking inherent existence. So, so when we speak of one taste in relation to, in terms of emptiness, one way they are of one taste is their emptinesses are the same. The emptiness of book and the emptiness of cup. In terms of the emptiness, there is not the slightest change, slightest change, slightest difference. That's one way of speaking that one tasteness of emptiness. And then the other way is not only their emptinesses are one taste, but in terms of how they lack inherent existence, there is the same measure. So if we approach these ways, then we come to get some idea of what to show up, what to show up in building our concept, safe concept of emptiness, showing up, right? The sides and then making it. 
So this, some of these expressions are from Haribadara's commentary on Abhisamaya Alankar. And then some of them, uh, yeah, some of them are from Rimna, elucidation of the five stages of Goya Samaja. And in Sashi, the Sawashira, in Nagarjuna's treatise on the middle way, uh, there are expressions such as Sishi Nyamni. Sishi Nyamni. Si is another name for samsara. Shi is another name for nirvana. In English, they do not get much representation. It's 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 very difficult. So easily it goes samsara and and nirvana. Whereas the Tibetan term used here is sipa. Sometimes it is used as a qualifier for korwa. Sipa korwa. Sipa, which is korwa. But sometimes it is used on its own to represent samsara. And when it is used, then the nirvana is used is 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 represented by its corresponding word, which is shiva, peace. Uh, but very often it doesn't get, uh, yeah, I, I came across in one of the translations that I was doing, I insisted on conveying differently, uh, but we ended up uh, using more convenient, understandable. Anyway, uh, so the, uh, Expression means samsara and nirvana being of one taste. So here, in t one taste in the sense, not just samsara and nirvana, all phenomena are of one taste when it comes to emptiness. So one taste, both in the sense, uh, not just both, maybe, maybe three, in, in all three ways, let's come up with three ways. They are, all phenomena are one taste, in terms of emptiness, because the emptiness of each of the phenomena, without exception, are the same. In how they lack inherent existence is the same. And the measure of their lack of inherent existence, there is not the slightest change. So in all of this, they are of the same taste. In how one thing is lacking in inherent existence is the same exact way how the other one is. That's one way. And the other is the, the emptiness of each and every phenomena. When we speak of the emptiness themselves, there's not the slightest change, difference. The difference is only on the the difference is only, we can make the difference, we can speak of this emptiness and this emptiness only by virtue of the basis being different. Other than that, there can be no difference at all. If we were to be presented the emptiness of cup and the emptiness of book all by themselves without the book and the cup, we would be not able to tell apart. <laughs> that's, what, that's a way of saying it. Whereas that's not the case with impermanence and other qualities. That's one thing. <laughs> okay, I think we spent quite a time here. Yes. Yes, please. 
Yeah, maybe we can use this remaining time if we have people. Yes. Two questions uh -huh. about the translation. So, is voidness? How? What do you think about with voidness um, to translate "dongpani"? And then, second one is why? Why do they use "taste"? Why is it? I see. Why? Why not some other? Yeah. Senses. Why taste? I see. Yeah, I think, I think, not that I know fully well, but I think why people came up and tried using another term, whiteness, might be because they felt unsettled with the term and emptiness, and it was too misleading and whatnot. And that may be that may be the reason why they may have uh, come up with a substitute. And but. I think it is itself ripe with risk in misunderstanding. And uh, and as I was saying, for the very reason that they were trying to avoid it, uh, it, it gives the added reason to, uh, to keep emptiness. Voidness seems to be little, uh, even from the usage itself in English, there seems to be a uh, little misleading, I think. I think emptiness seems to be better. Now, the uses of the term taste is because of the Tibetan term ro, rojik. So we, when we say rojik, we are using it in the sense of taste. Uh, of course, not as a taste per se, but we are borrowing the same term. Oh, so. All things are of one taste in emptiness. So we use the same term. So I mean to connote that sense of of no difference of coming down to the same thing. If we were to borrow Expressions based on the senses, I think taste would come the closest in conveying that oneness. But at the same time, it's because the Tibetan itself uses the same term for rojik. Yeah. Yes, please. So Geshe, when you talk about the two truths, um, one taste in terms of their falsity, I understand that conventional truth is also called veiled truths, but yeah. I'm not quite sure the falsity of the ultimate nature reality. Where does yeah. the falsity come Even from? the ultimate uh, nature, and even emptiness itself is not, itself is uh, not, uh, what's the term? Itself is not immune from being deceptive to the conceptual thought. It appears, even to an inferential understanding of emptiness, the emptiness itself appears as inherently existing. 
So there's a falsity there, double standard there in how it appears and how it exists. So in terms of that uh, falsity, in terms of that double standard in how it appears to a conceptual thought, to how it actually exists, uh, the same double standard deceiving nature uh, is shared by emptiness also. Yeah, for both suits, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I find this statement, the equality of samsara and nibbana, challenging because as far as I understand, samsara and nibbana are not opposites. One is an emptiness, and samsara is a little bit challenging that there's no clear definition, but it seems like it's the mind that's propelled from life to life due to karma and afflictions. So would it be more accurate to think about this in terms of a mind of samsara and a mind of nirvana, or, or something that gets to the point that brings them more into equality? No. Now, when we are talking of emptiness and whatnot, just about anything, you just close your eyes and then reach out to two things. We can speak of these two are, without looking at it, of one taste in emptiness. Then why are we talking about samsara and nirvana? We're just talking about two random things. Yes. Now there is a special reason there, because samsara is something to be freed from, and nirvana is something to achieve. Right? So we're making the connection between the two in terms of their basic nature. But that very basic nature is a very instrumental tool in making that transition. We're trying to achieve a wisdom realizing emptiness, not emptiness itself. No, 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 no. Nirvana is an Yeah, 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 yeah. The emptiness itself is a, is a very uh, instrumental tool in, in, in employing on the path. Uh, for our transition from samsara to, to nirvana, in that by understanding it and by applying it on the path, in terms of, in, in a way, on the path in the, in, in the sense that when we understand it, then the afflictions, when we, we would have kind of seized or had our grip on the root of the afflictions, and thus reverting it reversing it, we make the transition. So in terms of one test, if that's the question, then that shouldn't be a problem. I can just reach out to anything and then say one test. <laughs> so, but at the same time, when speaking in terms of samsara and nirvana, there is a special link with the phenomena of emptiness and this transition of why we are mired in samsara because of completely misconstruing it, why is it possible for us to enter nirvana? By understanding it correctly for what it is. All it boils down to emptiness, either misconstruing it or getting it right. Yeah, I think, yeah, there is a special reason for speaking of this, whereas we could speak of just about anything has the same test in emptiness. But that makes that relevance little far-fetched. Yes. Um, is the mind's clear light nature, its Buddha nature, and its empty nature, are they speaking of the same nature? Mm. That's different. That's slightly different. 
Although, although em there are occasions when emptiness of things is also spoken in terms of clear light. So not mind's clear light, but clear light. So that is the objective clear light. So when we speak of objective clear light, on the objective side, the very nature of being empty is very crucial in the in the process in, in, in our pursuit of transformation. So there are occasions when it is also called clear light. And uh, what was the other conventional? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but the nature by itself is not the same as emptiness, but. Uh, the mind's emptiness, the emptiness of an un, uh, the emptiness of a contaminated mind, is uh, is one of the Buddha natures. So it holds a great uh, place, role plays a great role in the prospect of our transformation. So, so, but it is not interchangeable with Buddha nature. Yeah, but part of a Buddha nature, part of the instance or representation of Buddha nature is an emptiness, but not of everything, particularly of one's mind, of one's mind. So it is slightly yes, slightly no, but they are not exactly the same. There was a third one, what did you say, conventional nature? I had just said the mind's clear light nature. Mind's clear light nature. Yeah. Okay. And the Buddha nature, and it's empty nature. I see. Okay. So when you speak of mind's clear light nature, then then you you already you're choosing a topic where it could be it could be speaking either the mind as its mind as an objective thing. Or mind as a subjective thing. In both cases, we can speak of clear light nature. So, objective clear light could be on the on on the basis of a mind, but we'll be speaking of its emptiness. But when we speak of subjective clear light nature of the mind, then we are speaking of its subjective, most subtle nature, which is a consciousness, but more of a of a subtle nature. Yeah. But when we speak of emptiness, emptiness is everywhere, right? Emptiness everywhere, so emptiness of everything. Uh, yeah, but when you speak of mind's clear light, then it's specifically to mind. And in relation to mind, the mind's emptiness is is one of the Buddha nature. But not emptiness of the cup or emptiness. That's not Buddha nature. Yeah, last time, last time I spoke of non-local, non-local something, right? I, I wanted to make a, a clarification here. Very often people use the term non-local to mean that the mind is not located or mind is not contingent on brain. So long as, as soon as one dies and one is no more with the brain, it says now there's still mind and thus it shows that the mind is not not local, because it is no more dependent on brain. 
and, this, and, and that the scientific, mainstream scientific understanding of the mind in relation to brain is that of its locality, of its being dependent on brain as a local, locale, and without it, it wouldn't be. Whereas, the, so sometimes people use the term non-locality in that context. But what I was speaking of, so of, of mind being local, is not saying that even after one's death, it is still dependent on a brain as such, uh, but rather saying that it would always be accompanied by its, uh, by its, by its what do you call, accompanying uh, wind energy or prana. And because of that, it would be always local. It will not be everywhere. And thus we maintain our individuality, even after becoming Buddha. Although there, the, the individuality, the difference would be very thin, almost, almost for the sake of saying it, but nonetheless still different. Different in terms of when they became Buddha, what caused them to Buddha, with whom they became Buddha, and how, how far apart in time they became Buddha, those differences still remain. Whereas when they fully become fully omniscient and whatnot, not just among themselves, but with every sentient being, there's not, no difference in terms of what they know, what they do not know. Uh, in terms of love and compassion, and what they're capable of not, there's no difference at all. So it, the, 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 the difference becomes so, so what do you call, so thin, but nonetheless, there is this difference. So I was speaking of locality, but then in in the same spirit, not in the same, yeah, in the same spirit in proving that mind will outlast body, people speak of minds being non-local. So I wanted to make the distinction. My uses of non-local and local and some others. I think, uh, with that, we have to shift our local. Uh, you have a question, yeah. An announcement about next week. Oh, okay, please. Um, so next week, um, classes, from next week on, classes go back to 6 p.m. Pacific time, not 7 p.m. And next week also there'll be no samsara, samsara nirvana buddha nature class because there's the Oh, peaceful Living, Peaceful Dying Retreat. That starts mm -hmm. next Friday with Venerable Sangha Kadro. So the next Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature teaching will be in two weeks at 6 p.m. Pacific time, not 7 p.m. April 12th. Thank you. Maple, May, May, no, not Maple, May 12th. <laughs> Did you say maple syrup? Ha, 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 ha.